Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. So we sent out in Rockbrook News and on social media what the topic for the sermon was going to be this week, and um, there's been some of you who have even called me or stopped me and asked me, what's the deal with this message this weekend? What are we talking about? What are we doing? Many of you have been um, looking forward to a message like this for a long time, and we're not launching a new series today. This is not a series. This is what I would call a a standalone message. In fact, I've got uh, a handful of standalone messages that... I'm going to be bringing you this summer. They don't attach or belong really in any series. They're just things that God has put on my heart for our church in these days. And so I think you'll find them interesting and compelling, helpful. Uh, so I hope you look forward to those uh, with me each week of, of this summer. But today I want to talk about the difference between the way many of you grew up living out your faith and what we do today at Rockbrook. Uh, This is one of the most asked questions I get as a pastor. It's one of the most asked questions our staff gets is what's the difference between the Catholic Church and what what we're doing here today at Rockbrook? So I've been answering that um, with people individually. People have been walking through that journey in uh, some small groups and I just want to answer it today broadly in a sermon. Now as a child... I, I didn't know very much about the Catholic Church. Growing up, about all that I knew about Catholicism, I learned from the sound of music. And so that was kind of limited. But uh, since then, I have a seminary degree. I've studied church history. I've studied the Reformation. And uh, again, I've walked through this journey with several of you who have come from the Catholic Church. So this, this message will answer a few more questions than how do you solve a problem like Maria. So we'll go a little bit deeper than that. But before we begin... I have a really big qualifying statement to make about this whole message, and that is that I am not protesting anything. Protestant means protester or protesting, and Catholics uh, call non-Catholics Protestants. They call us Protestants because we're not aligned with them and that we're, we're protesting what they're doing, but I'm not This message is not to cause any more division, it's not to force anyone to change, it's not to make anyone angry, it's just that part of my job, part of my ministry is to help bring clarity to your Christian life, and that's what I want to do today. I I want to talk about what unifies us, I want to unify us as a church uh, to bring clarity to the journey that uh, many of you are on and are taking and in fact, I just love the spirit of, of Jesus' words and Jesus' prayer, and I hope that we kind of take on this spirit as well today. Uh, in John chapter 17, Jesus is actually praying um, as he's entering into his last days of ministry, his last days of life. It's kind of a final report to God the Father as his final days are approaching, and he's praying for his disciples Uh, The people he's been walking with for three years and for his followers, but then he kind of turns the corner and he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me. So that's you and me today. 
May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that amazing that you love them as much as you love me. So amazing. God's love for you is so amazing. He wants you to experience that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. His love, scripture says, is high and wide and long and deep. How high is it? It's high enough to cover any of your mistakes. How wide is it? It's wide enough to be everywhere. How long is it? It's long enough to last forever. How deep is it? It's deep enough to handle anything. God loves you and he wants those who he loves, whom he loves, to be unified, to be one. And if you ever experience God's love, it changes everything, doesn't it? God's love, can I get a better amen? Somebody who's experienced God's love, it changes everything. It's amazing. And Jesus prays that he wants those whom he loves to be one, to be unified. So what I want to do today is I just want to start together. Before we talk about the differences, let's, let's talk about what unifies us. And the Apostles' Creed is a great way for us all to be uh, unified. We all unite around the Apostles' Creed and have for uh, almost 2,000 years. This was a statement that the early church leaders wrote uh, to help people remember what they believed. They didn't have a printing press. There wasn't a Bible in every room and everything else. So they had this statement to help people remember what they believe, to state what they believe, to claim what they believe, to witness to other people, to, to, to die for what they believe. But let's, uh, we're going to read this statement together. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read it. And some of you are like, here we go. I left the Catholic Church for a reason. But you know, like, It's okay, we can stand for this together. Let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated again. Hold it. Sign of the cross. All right, now you can be seated. Some of you, that was just instinct, right? But come on, that creed is so amazing. These are the things that unite us. These are the things that bring us together. I believe that creed. Catholics believe that creed. I hope and pray you believe that creed. It's the stuff that unifies us. Everything centers on Jesus, common ground in him. But when that says, there's one line in there you might be confused about, and that is the part where it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and that doesn't mean Roman Catholic. That's little c Catholic, and all that word means is universal. Capital C Church, meaning not a local church like Rockbrook, it's meaning that all believers, on, uh, believing in Christ, they're one body, they're the church on, on earth. And so another way to just translate that would be one holy church, one universal church. And this creed unites us, unites believers all around the globe. And, but with that said, there are many clear distinctions and differences. And so I want to help you. If you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, for those of you who you did not, but you're curious or maybe confused, 
uh, I want to discuss five uh, big differences between the Roman Catholic Church and Rockbrook. And th- there are many differences, but there are prob- this, these are the ones that are most helpful for this sermon today. And uh, you could probably sum it all up with this first one. These kind of have a domino effect today. But if I only had time for one, it would be this one. And that is, if you're taking notes, the Bible is our sole source of authority. It's not that for the Roman Catholic Church. It's a source of authority. It's considered sacred. Scripture is respected. But uh, on the screen here, you can see from one of their faith statements, the doctrine in Vatican II document says, in order to keep the gospel forever whole and alive within the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors, handing over to them the authority to teach in their own Place. Pope Francis is the 266th Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, a line that they claim all the way back to Peter, starting with Peter, the disciple of Christ, who Catholics refer to as Pope number one. Why do they reference him as Pope number one? Even though Peter never claimed that title, never asked for that, here's why they take it all the way back to Peter, because in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you what do people say about, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter answered this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says to him, there's no way you could have known that. God revealed it to you. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What's the deal? Catholics believe that Jesus was building his church on the rock of Peter Non-Catholics believe he was building the church on the rock of Peter's confession, his statement that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the big difference completely, how you interpret this particular line. Jesus calls Peter the rock because he gave this answer of Jesus being the Messiah. And Peter would go on to be the first leader of the church in Jerusalem, and from Peter's where the papal office came. So in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope... Uh, can change things. Uh, They can add rules. They can remove rules. They can change things as they feel led. We, as Rockbrook Church, do not go to tradition or opinion or committee on truths that are clear in Scripture because it's God's Word. This is the way he, He wants things. He's the Creator, and this is His Word. Now, Catholics trace the papal line back to Peter whether Peter wanted that or not. Um, His official stature wasn't even created until years and years and years after he died. Uh, So it's hard to say how the whole thing would have gone. As I read about Peter and as I read what God used Peter to say in Scripture, I don't think he would be comfortable with what the Catholics have done to him and done for him. I really don't. Um, But we know that from Scripture that Peter was the leader of the first church. But infallibility, you just don't, you don't, you don't see that in scripture, okay? By the way, Peter was married. How do we know Peter was married? Because Jesus healed his mother-in-law, and you don't have a mother-in-law just for the fun of it. (laughs) I love you, Vicky, I really do. It's just a joke, just trying to lighten the mood here a little bit with this, so all right. But it wasn't until a thousand years later that the church uh, changed the rule on, on priests getting married. No, nothing in scripture, certainly in the New Testament, about priests or clergy 
not getting married. It's just simply a rule that the Roman Catholic Church came up with somewhere along the way they thought that would be a good idea. The Catholics have the Pope, the papal office, sacred tradition to decide to do things uh, differently. Having a priest is not even really biblical. It's not even in the Bible. So there's a big reason for the difference. Uh, Again, from the Vatican II, their doctrine statement. Consequently, it's not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. That sums up a lot of the difference, doesn't it? That's a big difference. Sometimes people say, well, Catholics follow rules that aren't even in the Bible. And every good Catholic would tell you, yes, that's absolutely true. And they have a reason for doing that. It's because they have elevated the the view of the church's authority in the daily life of the believer. So where did Ash Wednesday come from? Uh, And Lent and not eating meat at certain times and priests not getting married, the doctrine of purgatory, infant baptism, the eternal virginity of Mary, infallibility of the Pope. None of that stuff is in here, but it's because they take tradition, they take the church office as well as the Bible. For us, it's this, 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is enough. And we've preached many times on Uh, why we believe the Bible is believable, why you can bet your life on it. You can find those online if maybe that's what you're struggling with today. But this is, Scripture's enough to lead us and guide us. God's Word is enough. It's sufficient. The second difference, if you're taking notes, is we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And the Catholics, they still lean toward an Old Testament system of worship. There's still a railing between the congregation and the altar in many Catholic churches Because only the priest has access to give uh, you the sacraments and do the things of the priestly office. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, a priest looked quite different than their role, but uh, the priest was the one who spoke for people on behalf uh, of of people on their way to God. There was a special place in the tabernacle, in in the temple, where only the priest could go to offer sacrifices for the people. But at the moment of Jesus' death, that veil that separated people from that that holy place in the temple was torn. It was torn in half from top to bottom. God's action of saying that I don't need anyone to intercede uh, for me any longer. My son is the high priest. We can all come into my presence because of his sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice. We're all free to serve and called to serve. So what that means for us at Rockbrook is there's no special caste uh, or group of people that are called clergy and elevated to a higher position than the lowly people in the pew. You know, Catholics believe that there's a priestly office, that only they can administer the sacraments. But you read through the book of Acts and you see the church is getting started and it was the disciples who start the church. Who are the disciples? Fishermen. A tax collector. Just a unschooled ordinary men the bible calls them the word there that that's used is idiotes you can take that how you want but it's just people that they don't and they're unschooled but they've been with jesus that's what made them special that's what made them unique and even peter was not theologically trained he was a fisherman 
He's a fisherman who spent three years with Jesus, and that was it. And here's what Peter wrote. God, God using Peter in these words, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people. You are. It's us today, you can put your name in there, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So nowhere in the Bible do you find the words clergy or laity. Uh, that's why we allow believers and members of Rockbrook to help with baptism, to serve communion, to pray and visit the sick and share Christ, to lead worship. One of our slogans around here is every member a minister. Every member a minister. So, yes, we have leadership. The New Testament gives us a structure of leadership for the local church, that we're a, a spiritual body that's being led, that we're a spiritual family. Just like in family, you have uh, leadership. In the church, there is leadership. A pastor means shepherd. I'm called to, to shepherd this church. But that does not mean that I am to stand in the place of your relationship with God. My job as a pastor here is to equip people, to empower people, to shepherd people into their own relationship with God and acts of ministry and service within the church. And the, the big problem with the priesthood scenario is that Jesus told us to not have, to not put people in place of our own relationship with God. That's what he's saying in these words from Jesus, Matthew 23, 9, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. And if you put anyone in that place, if you, put, if you put your faith in a person, they're going to disappoint you. Don't put me on that pedestal. I will disappoint you. No, nobody, don't call me father unless your name is Landry or Sterling. Okay? <laughs> and we're seeing the disappointment it causes. And the reason the abuse in the Catholic Church is so prevalent in the news is because they've spent years trying to conceal it and hide it, and now it's being brought into the light, and they're being forced to address it. We talk about that all the time here. You see, you can't change what you keep in the dark. You've got to pull it in. If you're trying to change something in your life, you've got to pull it into the light. And, and now that things are being drawn into the light, they're taking steps to address it. An archbishop was not uh, too long ago defrocked in the United States, first time that's ever happened. And accountability and consequences are important. But I'll tell you, just the same, the abuse of power of pastors in Protestant churches damages the kingdom of God too. This is not a Catholic problem. It's not a Protestant problem. This is, it's wrong when anyone does it. It's a human heart condition. It's a human heart problem. And we need to fall at the feet of Jesus on his mercy and his grace. Ask him to cleanse our hearts, to heal us from the inside out. And ask him to heal us. So what, what's this point all about? Well, the Bible calls us to honor, to respect, to follow our leaders and pastors, but it's also clear there's no hierarchy anymore. The veil's been torn, and we all have equal access. And hello, with equal access comes equal responsibility. We all have equal responsibility for our faith and our service to God. All right, if you're taking notes, the third difference we'll talk about today is that that is we admire Mary, but we don't pray to her. Young Benjamin was being very selfish one Christmas. 
And uh, he just kept uh, writing his list out to Santa of what he wanted and rewriting his list. And his father got fed up with it to the point that he, he took Benjamin to the living room and sat him in front of the mantle where the nativity scene was. And he says, I just want you to look at this and I want you to reflect on the true meaning of Christmas, Benjamin. And, and then I want you to, to write a letter to Jesus. And so he started writing, Dear Jesus, I've been a very good boy this year. And uh, here's, uh, here's the started with the list of things that he wanted. And, then he said, oh, you know, I haven't been a very good boy this year. Say, Jesus knows everything. So he crossed that out and says, I'll be a very good boy next year. <laughs> nah, Jesus knows that's not going to be true. So I've got, I've got a good week in me. Jesus, I'm going to be good, uh, good next week. And all the things that he wanted. And he says, man, I don't know. So he goes over to the nativity scene and he grabs Mary and puts Mary in his shirt and goes over and says, Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... <laughs> Mary is a great example of someone who is fully devoted to God. Maybe the greatest example of faithfulness and devotion in the scriptures. In the Catholic teaching, she's elevated to a place of special a sainthood and called the Queen of Heaven and the Eternal Virgin. Someone who receives our petitions. Because if you want to get the attention of the Son, go through the Mother. So the Hail Mary closes with the words, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. And as much as I appreciate the respect Catholics give to the saints and to Mary, oftentimes, maybe even unintentionally, but it gets in the way, it distorts the attention we're to give to Christ. The relationship God says that you can just have with Jesus. And the Bible tells us that there is for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, Catholics believe this also, but the view they have of Mary puts her in a place that gets in the way of the relationship that we have with Jesus. And we don't have to go through Mary to have her pray for us. She was a great example of a humble servant and of a faithful, and we, we preach sermons about Mary, and we admire, we, lo- we learn from her. And we should honor her, but we don't have, Jesus is the way to God. We don't have to go through her to get to Jesus or to get to God. He's always right there. He's with us to the very end of the age. Now, don't, don't go to it yet, but a, a fourth major difference between us and the Catholic Church has to do with what happens after death. Now, both Catholics and us believe that unbelievers, unbelievers, will spend eternity separated from God, apart from God. But when it comes to uh, what happens to believers, it's a little different. And so if you're taking notes, we believe those who put their trust in Jesus Christ are immediately in the presence of God after death. And from their church traditions, from their reliance on books that they've attached to Scripture, Catholics have developed the doctrine of purgatory, a place of cleansing uh, to prepare for heaven, preparation for heaven. The very idea of purgatory and the doctrines that are often attached to it, praying for the dead, indulgences, works in beha- on behalf of the dead, is church tradition. In fact, the, um, the, I, they introduced purgatory in the grand scheme of things not that long ago. And another pope has come along and kind of waffled on that and says that's not really what... So the position is kind of distorted even from, even from their point of view. But all, but purgatory, all the doctrines attached to it 
at the end of the day, fail to recognize that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay the penalty for all of our sin. Jesus' sacrifice paid for and cleansed, cleansed us of all of our sin. And to limit Jesus' sacrifice to only original sin, or to limit Jesus' sacrifice to only uh, the sins I committed up until the moment I believed, is to say Jesus' life was not perfect and his sacrifice was not sufficient. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died that death on the cross to be a sacrifice once and for all. And it's sufficient that because of Christ's work on the cross, there isn't even need for a temporary punishment. And we believe that Jesus and Scripture, God, that, that we're justified by faith in Christ alone. And that his righteousness is imputed to us when we die. And we'll go straight to heaven to be with the presence of the Lord. A uh, couple scriptures on this. One is at the scene at the cross. Jesus is dying between two thieves. One thief uh, rejected Christ. The other thief, as they're hanging there on the cross, begins to believe Jesus is who he says he is. And he turns to Christ and he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus turned back to him and said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Now there are certain groups of Christians that believe when you die, you just stay in the grave, asleep, until Jesus comes back and everybody's raised and go to heaven. But that's not in the Bible. Jesus does not tell the guy, today you'll be with me in soul sleep. He doesn't say, today you'll be in purgatory. If anybody deserved purgatory, it's the guy who waits, the thief, who waits till his last breath to give it to Christ. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the word, the word purgatory is not in the Bible. It's just tradition. It's, being in the presence of God is immediate and assured. The Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body, it's, it's to be present with the Lord. And because of the perfection, the completion the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, we're immediately in the Lord's presence after death, fully cleansed, ultimately sanctified, free from sin, glorified, perfected. Come on, aren't you looking forward to that? Isn't that going to be a great day? Come on, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Can I get a better amen, somebody? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. All right, this next one, like I said, these have a domino effect and it hits into this one. That's the fifth one, is that we trust in God's grace alone for salvation. Now, a major reason why the Protestant Reformation happened 500 years ago in 1517, major reason for, for the group uh, that, that really came up and, and said, this is getting so far beyond. We've got to reform this back to what Jesus taught and what the, what, what the apostles taught us and what scripture teaches us is that the, the reason that happened was there was a group of, of prominent, influential Catholic scholars, key Catholic scholars, that were saying other things needed to be added to maintain your salvation. Other things needed, works of righteousness to maintain salvation. And they would use key, key scriptures that we use today, but they, they would emphasize and focus on the wrong part of it to where it would get distorted. But uh, Romans 3.20 on the screen. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Meaning that 
the law, all it does is prove to you that you need a savior. You need someone strong enough to save. The works of righteousness, it's not enough. It's not going to save you. It goes on to say, for all, have, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Another amazing scripture on this, Titus 3, 4 through 5. And I was underlining parts of this. And then when I came back to it, I ended up underlining the whole thing. So let's just the whole thing here. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now, the Catholics also believe this. They do. But you might have been pretty confused along the way because of the sacramental system and uh, the confessions and all the things that salvation is maintained through that sacrificial system. And sometimes I talk to people who say it just got to the point through all the works of righteousness and all the things that it just, it left me feeling this void that I was never going to be worthy enough, that I was never really going to be assured of my salvation, that it was never enough. Because they were, they were focusing on their works. I've talked with other people that also because of focus on, their focus on their works, they say, I've been to enough mass and enough confessions and prayed enough Hail Marys and prayers of absolution to last me the rest of my life, I'm good. Both are focusing on their work, boasting in their work, either for the positive or the negative. The big difference for us is that we boast in the cross, we boast in God's grace, and we trust in God's grace alone for salvation. Ephesians 2, 4, but because of his great love for us, are you beginning to believe that God loves you? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He made us alive even though we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. Let's read this last part all together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Because here's the deal. You can't possibly absolve your own sins. They're too great. The wages of sin is death. And you can't solve the death problem. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. It's it's a matter of life or death. There's no scale in between. There's no being good enough to land in in between. If, If it was about being good enough... I'll tell you, I'm a pretty good guy. And I know many of you really well. And what I know is that many of you are a lot better than me. A lot. But there's no grading on the curve. There's no curve between death and life. It's why Jesus had to come and not give us a system, not give us a list of rules. He had to come and pay the penalty of death for us and be strong enough to rise from the dead, to solve the problem of death. 
God sent his son so that whoever believes would not die but have everlasting life. And it's a free gift to anyone who needs it. And guess what? Everyone needs it. I need it. You need it. The Pope needs it. Mother Teresa needs it. Billy Graham needs it. Mary, mother of Jesus, needs it. The guy hanging on the cross next to Jesus needs it. The guy on on death row in prison needs it. We all need it. It's what grace is. It's in Christ alone. Does this matter? I think it matters a lot. Because I'm a dad now, and I can't imagine how God feels as he watches his children running around hoping that we're doing enough, being good enough to be loved and chosen and accepted by him when he's already created us, loved us, chosen us, accepted us, adopted us, and filled out the adoption papers with blood from the cross. You're forgiven. Do you believe in him? Are you trusting in his grace? Where have you put your faith? Let's pray together. I'm going to pray a prayer now that is just on my heart this weekend. And uh, as I pray it, and you hear it maybe in your heart, you say, that's me too. So just in your mind, say to God, me too, God. Well, God, you have said that we can have all our doctrine right and, and be right, have all our theology right. But if we do not love, we are nothing. And God, I want to experience your love for me. And I need your help to express that love back to you. And God, I pray that you'd help me love other people. The people in my life I agree with, the people I disagree with. God, we want to be one as the Father and Son are one. God, I need you. I need your grace. God, I can't even do a good work and act of righteousness without your grace. Thank you for saving me. Help me to trust in you. Help me to learn to follow you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.